This presentation of In Their Own Words is brought to you by The Honor Project and is dedicated to the brave men and women of the United States Armed Forces. Flying low and slow over enemy territory in Vietnam, forward air controllers, or FACs, choreographed the sky over the battlefield. Typically, they flew in small single-engine unarmed propeller aircraft like the Cessna 01 Bird Dog. The FACs were experts at spotting an evasive, well-camouflaged enemy, and they often braved a battery of enemy ground fire to target the opposing force. In Southeast Asia, a clandestine group of the best forward air controllers, known as Ravens, operated mainly in Laos in a covert attempt to stop the enemy. Just 24 years old, William Platt became a pilot on the secret Raven team. From day one, Platt wanted to be part of the action. Going through pilot training, my flight commander had been a forward air controller. And when it came time to choose an assignment, uh, he took me aside and, and told me that this was probably the best assignment I could ever have. He was right. So I volunteered for uh, that assignment out of pilot training, went through survival school, uh, both water survival and a winter survival school and then jungle survival school in the Philippines. Arrived in Cameron Bay and in the first couple of days they asked us if we knew anyone in a unit where we'd like to be assigned. They gave us a telephone number and I called the, I guess it was a personnel officer and just asked him to send me where the action is. He told me he had just the right place for me. He sent me to uh, 5th Special Forces working out of Pleiku. And I had uh, two forward air controllers who had been there for many months, uh, real veterans of, of uh, combat in the Central Highlands, uh, Bob Daly and Ron Hincy, who checked me out and uh, taught me what I needed to do to survive. After I'd flown the 01, I realized that it was uh, gonna be the best seat in the house. Wind is open, air blowing through the, the cockpit, slow, you could see what was going on. Uh, light airplanes had been a part of my life for a while. My dad was a pilot and started me at about eight years old, so the environment of a small airplane was uh, very natural to me. I was uh, comfortable in that environment, whereas being on the ground was where the real danger was. Anybody who's uh, done any quail hunting or dove hunting knows that it's not really an easy thing to hit a moving target uh, with a rifle. And of course, we did our very best to uh, make it difficult to determine what direction we were going, how fast we were going, whether we were climbing or diving. It never really crossed your mind that you were an easy target or, or even a good target. Uh, in reality, they didn't like to shoot at facts because uh, behind us was uh, the entire air assets of the Allied Air Forces. So it was fairly comfortable, even though we were low and slow, uh, you had a feeling that 
that you were in control of your environment and that uh, he was at the disadvantage, not us. Uh, it was a romantic type of an assignment uh, online with the fighter pilots, the guys who, who were going faster but uh, spending 10 minutes on target rather than three or four hours. Be elusive. Uh, we called it jinking. You, the airplane was never in a straight line. You, were, you flew with your feet on the rudder pedals and your hand on the trim wheel and not on the, the yoke. You kept the airplane out of trim, kept uh, yaw in it so that it appeared that you were going one direction and, and in reality you were going another. You had to pick an altitude uh, based on the threat. Uh, if you didn't feel the threat was high, you could go a lot lower. And, and again, if you were facing uh, larger weapons, 37 millimeter, uh, ZEEP, or 51 caliber, you uh, gave yourself a little extra dis distance. To fully understand his role as a FAC, Platt decided he needed the perspective of the troops on the ground. I realized that I didn't really have a concept of what it was like to be on the ground. And in order to support them, it became apparent that I needed to spend a minimal amount of time on the ground with the team, seeing how they operated, where they traveled, how they traveled, what their procedures were. Uh, so I talked to the commander of the, the camp and asked to go on patrol with uh, the Mike Force. They gave me a helicopter lift to a fire base and introduced me to three Americans and 15 mountain yards. They assigned me three mountain yard bodyguards uh, who were stuck very close to me the entire time. We were airlifted into a little meadow and proceeded to walk across uh, ridge lines and down into valleys. In the bottom of each valley, there's usually a creek. And along the sides of the creek were trails. And every ridge line had another little creek and more trails. So it was really a spider web of trails. The idea was to find a spot on that trail, determine that the trail was active, and you would do that by uh, finding the uh, the waste of the soldiers that had been traveling on the trail when you found uh, fresh excrement or part of his food you knew that that trail was active. We set up an ambush on a particular trail and in the process of setting up our camp or a a good ambush site, uh, we had one Viet Cong clad in black walk right into the perimeter of the, of, uh, the patrol. The Molten Yard who was at that end of the perimeter didn't realize that he had actually walked past him. When the Special Forces sergeant uh, saw the Viet Cong, he picked up his weapon and started to chase him down the trail, uh, giving pursuit and 
Very shortly thereafter, we took some mortar rounds uh, outside of our perimeter and packed our weapons and ponchos and uh, rucksacks quickly and went over the next ridgeline where we established another ambush site. We did have an NVA soldier come down the trail. Uh, an attempt to capture him was uh, not productive. He was killed and his papers were taken as intelligence showing that the NVA were in the area. We took that intelligence, were airlifted back out to a firebase where I was glad that I spent the rest of my time in the air and not on the ground. To see mountain yards in the field and their ability to camouflage themselves on a trail, to see how quietly someone can actually move through the jungle, really helped me understand where the enemy would be. Uh, the enemy usually stayed down in those valleys close to water. It was a better place to walk. It was protected. The water in that along the creek provided bamboo uh, for making his lean-tos or his places to sleep, little bivouac areas. And when it came later in, in my tour to have to probe and find where the enemy was when you didn't have troops on the ground, that experience became very valuable in that I knew where to look. I knew how the enemy move down the trail, uh, what that trail looked like, the fact that it was always close to water as best he could, just, just like we would if we were moving down the trail. My belief is that the NVA knew our procedures and our timing very well, and they didn't stay around if they thought that there was going to be an airstrike in the immediate area. Generally, they would break contact, move very quickly through the jungle, and get out of the area where there would be an airstrike. It was a little different when it was Army aviation and hunter-killer teams with Cobra helicopters and Hueys and the Loach, and they'd be very, very close to the ground, right in the face of the enemy. At that point, the enemy had no choice. They could not disengage, therefore they started firing at the aircraft. Um, when that occurred, they knew what was coming within a half an hour usually. But a half an hour is a long time. And if I'd been them, I'd have left the area. And I think in many cases that's what they did. The delay in the availability of, of air and the time that it takes to brief the fighters uh, was our distinct disadvantage. But it did break the contact, which preserved the lives of many of our troops. Um, the NVA had a very healthy respect for, for air power and its capability. On one particular mission, Platt realized the enemy was always dangerously close, even though he was high above the battlefield. It was early April on the Plaine de Jars, and we had been pushed off the Plaine de Jars, lost most of the Lima sites, right up to Lima Site 20, where we were living. And the NVA had patrols 
within five to ten miles of the uh, Lima Site 20. And our senior fact, Jerry Ryan, asked me to take one of our backseater among officers in the back seat to scout for the most forward locations of the enemy. And the site at Lima 20 is in a horseshoe and on the north side of the airfield there's a high ridge line called Skyline Drive. And on that ridge line is a tachyon channel and a, an ADF beacon. And the backseater and I took off from Lima Site 20 and flew to the top of the ridge line and the clouds were down maybe three to four hundred feet above the ridge line. And as we flew along the ridge line, checking the closest area to, to our base of operation, there were small spider holes, three or four of them, along the side of the ridge line. And obviously the enemy had scaled the, the very steep incline and established some positions within four or five hundred yards of the top of the ridge line where we had uh, troops guarding the top. And this backseater tapped me on the shoulder and pointed to my AR-15, give me the gun. So I handed him the AR-15 back to him and he climbed over my shoulder with one arm around my my chest and was firing the AR-15 out the window as we made pass after pass across these little spider holes. It seemed rather futile at the time, but in his anger at how close the enemy was coming to his home, uh, he was going to do his very best to ruin their day. Shortly thereafter, the weather closed in and we landed and he reported back to General Vang Pao and within a very few days after that we were evacuated out of uh, Longchen and had to operate out of Yenchen for uh, several weeks. But that mission stands out in that not because of its particular danger but because of the passion of the of the Hmong who I had great respect for who knew that his family was in danger, that the enemy was closer than they had been in a very long time, and that it was confirmed that the amount of time and before the enemy would attack Long Chin was, was very close at hand. But many in the military looked down upon the renegade and cavalier behavior of the Raven Facts. I believe the relationship in Laos between the enemy and the ravens was take no quarter. We gave none, we expected none, and that was just how the rules played out in Laos. There is no doubt in my mind that, uh, that we wouldn't have made it to Hanoi, that we would have been brutalized and finished off in vengeance, for the uh, destruction which we had uh, instilled on the enemy. The general 
from 7th Air Force had come up to Longchin. And that was the second day that I was there. And I just had this mission with Craig Morrison. And to tell you the truth, I was exhausted and I went to bed early. And several of the Ravens stayed up and uh, talked to the general and his aide, and their discussions were not pleasing to the general as they proceeded to tell him that some of the uh, methods of the Air Force were not applicable on the Plain de Jars. And to have lieutenants and captains be as open and critical of the system and the leadership um, brought that particular general to a point where he characterized us as Mexican bandits. And when we woke up the next morning, the rumor was out that that is what we had been called on some message traffic. So I believe it was our intel officer organized a Mexican bandit uh, photo shoot. And the reputation started, and it was a fun one. In reality, I think there was a lot more discipline and a lot more sober approach to combat uh, from that particular group of men. Uh, and the image of the Mexican bandits was not characteristic. However, the reputation sticks, but I don't think it affected our flying. We continued to fly uh, and fight in the manner we always had, which perhaps Zapata or some of the Mexican bandits might have approved of, of the way we carried on. There were Air Force officers who knew that discipline was one of the most important elements in any successful operation. And it appeared that the Ravens had very little discipline, whether it be our haircuts, our attitude, our language, our disrespect for the conventional modes of operation, perhaps even some outspoken criticism of the way the war was being conducted. But I'm not sure that that was an accurate presentation. I probably saw more professionalism and dedication to duty, more gallantry and, and valiant behavior there than any place else that, uh, that I saw in Southeast Asia. And I would have to say it's, it stems from having the freedom to conduct aggression against the enemy in whatever way presented itself. And that is distasteful to a regular career officer who is not getting the respect that he may think he deserves. Let me ask you about uh, the enemy attitude toward the Ravens. I mean, were there, they, I mean, obviously the enemy knew that the Ravens existed and what was going on. Were, were Ravens marked men? The mystique says that the Ravens were marked men. I never talked to any of the enemy, but I would say that there was a mutual respect between combatants. They knew our capabilities. They knew that we were good at what we did. And we knew that they were pretty good at what they did as well. There were some gunners who uh, 
were better than others, and I guess we felt that they were the ones we were up against. There were stories that there were rewards out for ravens. I guess I probably took those as stories. They could have been valid. But in reality, we were combat pilots doing our job, and the enemy was doing what they were being told to do. I would say the type of men that we were flying with were men who put risk aside and put other people first and did what needed to be done in any situation to protect the troops on the ground. There was less control. We were young. We were aggressive. We thought we wouldn't take hits and we couldn't die. There were several academy graduates there in the Raven program who brought to the program a great professionalism and a knowledge of the history that the academies had taught, and men that really had committed their lives to a profession knowing that, that risk was part of the, the contract. We had leaders who understood that if we were able to use some initiative that we would be more effective against the enemy than if we were given altitudes that we could fly and places we could strike and couldn't strike. So all of our direction came from one source as far as clearance to strike through Vang Pao. There were no time delays. When you needed to put in a strike or you found a target, you had tactical air available within minutes instead of tens and twenties of minutes. I'd have to say that the men that were in the Raven program when I was there were one of the finest group of officers that I've ever served with. That there was a camaraderie and a humor and yet a dedication to duty that was both honorable and everlasting. They, uh, they were just a super group of, of young men doing a difficult job. In the Raven environment, we had a cause. We had people that seemed to be worthy of, of, uh, of our efforts. And it was a blow to all of us when we pulled out, leaving them without the support that we'd promised them. Bill Townsley was very enthusiastic about going to Vietnam in 1967, and he didn't hesitate flying unarmed planes into hostile territory. But during his tour, Townsley was shot down by the enemy. You know, I can tell you all about a 37 hitting you because that's what we think uh, I, I was hit with was a 37 millimeter anti-aircraft uh, on my uh, seventh mission uh, over there, seventh day I was flying, I actually started flying the 11th of January, 69, I was shot down the 18th of January. And the 37 millimeter, when it hit, as I recall, where I was flying with my right seater, my CTIP, uh, combat training instructor pilot, George, Major George Blair, I was a second lieutenant at the time, and uh, 
It was, uh, as I recall it, we would, we'd struck a target down uh, to the uh, down to the left, and I was pulling away, you know, to get away from being constant. And uh, uh, as I pulled away, he said, "Let's go back and take another look." And I remember coming back level, and and uh, away we went. Uh, we just it was a whoomp in the back end of the plane, and. Uh, to this day, George says, well, our right wing was shut off, and I say, no, our boom was split in half uh, back there. We don't know what really happened to the plane because our next, it just went into a flat spin, and it just tightened up and tightened up. And, uh, of course, you go into the slow motion aspect of life that you get into when you're in that survival mode, I guess. And we had about 4,500 feet to get out of the aircraft. I called Mayday Mayday. He's trying to recover the aircraft. I'm trying to recover the aircraft. It's just going straight down. And we picked the spot on the ground, or I did, where it was going to hit and decided I didn't want to be in it when it did. So we started trying to get out the aircraft. Uh, George got out. I think he hit, we think he hit his head on the strut on the way out, knocked him out. I dove out, got outside, pulled my ripcord, looked up to see the chute, heard the plane crash as the chute was opening. Uh, looked back down, saw the flames, and then I saw Georgia shoot just open and close just about that fast. And so I'm very sure he knocked himself out, but I still had a thousand feet to fall. <laughs> and uh, they started shooting at me. Uh, the bad guys were shooting at me. So I started swinging in the chute as much as I could for whatever good it did. I'm not dead, so <laughs> they didn't hit me. And uh, uh, hit the ground. I landed about 15 feet to the right side of the airplane. And I just, my chute was caught in a tree, so I had to leave it. And I just took off through the woods. I got about 50 yards from the plane, found a bush, jumped across a little stream, got into that, under that bush as best I could. Had a white helmet, you know. So I dug a hole real quick for the white helmet. And I had a gold cross pen in my pocket, so I took that out, threw that in the helmet. And I had a book. Um, by T.E. Lawrence, uh, Seven Pillars of Wisdom. Threw that in the hole that I dug. And then I just sat there and waited. And the bad guys, I could hear them come to the plane. And again, I was only about 50 yards away. And uh, then they started shooting up the woods really badly. Once on the ground, Townsley worked desperately to elude the ruthless North Vietnamese army. We were told uh, in, in our intelligence briefing that the path at Laos and the NVA along the trail did not take prisoners and that we should always save a bullet for ourselves if we, if we wanted to take that option. And uh, that was not an option for me. I just, I just never thought of it that way. But uh, that's basically it. They, you know, if you were caught up by Hanoi, you know, they could put you in the hotel there. But if you were caught on the trail, they did not take prisoners. So that's all we knew. Uh, you know, I mean, I was in danger, and there was no question. And you, you get into that, temp, we call it temporal distortion, where everything slows down. And uh, uh, you're in that mode, and you don't really think. You just react. You're just in a, in a reaction mode. You, what you do in that mode is, is for survival only. And uh, I've always believed that. You, you don't hear much. You don't talk much. You're just in a survival mode. So, the, And that's where I was pretty much all the way to the ground, but not quite. I, I woke up out of it. I remember coming out of it as I went through the trees and my chute got stuck in the tree. Uh, so I was not thinking until I got to a point. Now, I have to say that because I had just recently gotten out of survival school, I could almost feel my instructor sitting on my shoulders telling me what to do because it was just that new to me. It was that fresh to me. And all the 
all the ideas and thoughts that they had taught us only a few days before down in the Philippines were rushing back into my head, doing what I had to do, what I had to do, get off the path, get off the beaten path, find a bush, and freeze. I was not very confident at first because uh, I was being shot at randomly now. Uh, while I was on the ground, the, uh, the, the uh, whoever it was, the path at Lau or the NVA, were shooting randomly through the bushes and the bullets were ticking over my head uh, not too far away and uh, in the in the brush there and uh, when after and this went on for about an hour plus I landed dug up an anthill basically so I was covered in ants but I wasn't going to move I, and I had to you know like keep them out of my eyes and my nose didn't care about my ears but to keep them out of my nose you know you do strange things like cover your nose up and breathe in like that, you know, and snuff them out of your nose again, you know, kind of thing. And then I decided uh, they taught me to eat ants, so I started eating some of them. Uh, and after about an hour or two hours, I'm not sure how long, uh, they just finally went away. And at that point, things quieted down and I could hear airplanes overhead. And my uh, whole mode was uh, to get on the radio as soon as I could, and, because I f knew the air's, aircraft were ours. And uh, we had... Uh, well, as I got on the radio, um, I could hear George talking, and he thought I was dead. And I, of course, uh, you want to prove to him that you're not, and you say, no, no, I'm not dead, but I can't talk very loud, you know. And, and they had the, the uh, I think it was a PRC-46 was what they called it, PRC-46. Uh, and uh, uh, it had a little microphone cover on it. Uh, the mic and the, and, the, uh, and the speaker were the same unit and they had a little rubber cover that they would put over the top of it and you'd plug it into your ear so you could listen. Then you were supposed to press the button, lift the lid and talk and then lower the cover, let off the button and put it. And it was a very complicated procedure and, and uh, I learned uh, very quickly that I could talk through the tube, which was a new, they hadn't taught us that, but if I talked through the tube then I could keep my voice my voice uh, uh, from from what I want to say, I could keep my voice from going all over the uh, countryside, and uh, and with the people, the bad guys, fifty yards away, and I could hear them talking normal talk, so I figured they could hear me even if I got up to to a normal conversation. Of course, anything over the radio uh, had to be pretty. Uh, pretty well monitored, kept down to a minimum. So any noise scared me at that point. Any noise that I made scared me very much. I, that was my chief concern, was not make noise while I'm on the ground. Although Major George Blair landed safely and was coordinating his effort, attempts to rescue Townley did not go well. He got about 200 yards from the plane. He'd been talking, apparently, to the fighters for about an hour before I even was able to get on, come up uh, for as close as things were, were to me. And he, again, had everything. They had started to rescue him thinking I was dead. Of course, I came online. I said, no, I'm Covey 264. I'm alive. And they wouldn't believe me. They thought that I was spoofing them. So I had to use a few choice American words <laughs> to convince them that uh, I wasn't dead. And then they came back and asked me, um, you know, the, the secret question, uh, what's your favorite uh, dessert, you know, Aunt Martha's apple pie or something like that is what I said. And uh, 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 
and they realized that it was me and that I could really uh, go forward. And uh, so they got George out with the, well, the first helicopter came in for George. They put down a PJ with him to, to um, because he had injured himself, and they, or he told him that he'd injured himself. But it started getting shot up. They go, went away with that helicopter. There was, the PJ man was, the jumper is what he's called, PJ, was still on the string, and that, air, that helicopter was flying away. So uh, about half an hour later, they bring in the second helicopter, and they don't put down the PJ man, and George gets on, and I'm directing him to me uh, from his position, which was my job, to be quiet and get him to me. And I got the helicopter about 20 yards away, and it started getting shot up again, too. It takes off, and uh, I'm there, and everything gets real quiet. And, and I know that uh, Sandy Lead, the A-1, uh, Sandy is the uh, A-1 that uh, is the rescue, search and rescue leader up there, if you will. And uh, he... He said, let's go off channel a minute. He went off channel and I knew that they were gonna have to leave me because they were out. It was getting dark. It was just getting dusk and uh, that they would have to leave me. And they came back on and said, told me I had to leave me, that I'd have to dig in. And he wondered if I had my equipment. And I told him I, I had the works, not to worry. And uh, they took off and it was very silent and I just waited. I can just remember just scared the whole time, you know, uh, my dad was in the military uh, also and uh, I was a Marine before I joined the Air Force and uh, I just said I'm a soldier, some of us make it, some of us don't, I'm going to try till I die. And that was, the, you know, that was my attitude, I just kept trying and thinking about that and, and wondering who I was going to shoot and how many I was going to take on with my 38 caliber pistol because that's all I had was one six shots and and uh, that would all that'd be all I get off and should I take a chance on being captured or or what you know you just resist resist and you have to decide that's what you're deciding how many people are you going to take on at any one time uh, in a quick firefight and uh, but I could hear all the the commotion around the airplane that I that had crashed Plus, I could hear an encampment of uh, troops over a little bit further away, but I could hear a lot of talk from over there, talking and yelling. So I just waited, and they got up, and there was jabbering going on, in which I didn't understand any of, but I had always sworn that there were about there were three or four of them, and uh, as they were walking by, uh, two of them were trying to calm the third guy down, and I, I swear the third guy was saying, oh, there's still one guy out here, there's still one guy out here. And the other two would say, no, 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 it's okay. It's all right. They got them both, two, air, you know, two helicopters, two. So they, and I just was glad that the two guys, beat, you know, the, one wasn't very persuasive in his, in his discussion. They headed up towards right where I'd walked, about 15 yards away from where I was, and on up into, the, uh, into their encampment, and nobody looked for me. And I was left alone and thought, well, this is good. This, I might make it. And I just waited uh, until darkness fell. Started setting out all my equipment, and I had a problem with that because it was all wrapped in this kind of waxed paper. And that was something else that I changed when I got back home. I took all my equipment and put it in cloth because just opening wax paper just made too much noise. And every bit of noise was important to me. As the Sandy left, he said that your signal for getting up in the morning would be uh, an F-100 
Misty going afterburner over your head, AB uh, over your head. And I said, great, understood, see you in the morning. And uh, then night fell, of course, and as night fell and they, they weren't looking for me uh, because they thought I'd been picked up, of course, and uh, activity started generating. I could hear this uh, like a, a factory off to my east, about two or 300 yards, and I could hear the encampment, of course. I heard that earlier, and the people walked in that direction, so I knew that that's where they were encamped. Then I could, later on in the night, I could hear a truck, trucks come in and shut down about 100 yards, or I'm sorry, about 300 yards to my, to my northwest. And then the 37 millimeter that probably was the one that shot me down fired at some airplanes that were flying over during the night. And so with my compass that we had, our survival compass that we had, I was able to, with the luminous dot on the, on the pointer and, and one on the dial, I was able to click off exactly what heading they were. And then I just uh, remembered the numbers, 100 meters, 100 degrees, uh, 200 meters, so forth. And uh, in the morning when the Sandys finally came on, I mean, while there were people that were trying, apparently trying to wake me up or, you know, get me up on the radio, and I was not going to get up on the radio because I only had so much life in them. And I didn't know how long I was going to get stuck there with everything that was going on around me. So people were looking for me. I did not answer. Finally, uh, uh, w when the F-100 came overhead, went after burner, it was time for me to come up. And they asked me if I'd been sleeping. And yes, I had been sleeping during the night. Uh, but I'm fine now and everything's ready to go. But we got a problem. You know, we've got the various targets that we have to hit or we need to hit before we get me out of here. And uh, so we did, we went through that process. And I went from being an air fact one day to a ground fact the next, you know, for, for a day anyway. And uh, we hit all those targets. They just hit the whole area. And they spent about three or four hours doing that in the morning. They almost, in fact, almost hit me with a with a white phosphorus smoke we called it Willie Pete it landed about 15 yards from me exploded and the, and the phosphorus ball just dissipated right over my head I got on the radio very quick you know said knock it off knock it off and uh, they stopped for a moment I said I'm gonna we started getting out the mirror and we started flashing with the mirror well I didn't want to get up and expose myself from my bush so I would just hold it up sun was rising in the east and the only place I could see the Sandys was off to the west so I just was doing an angle shot where I could get the the, the flash to come off of a leaf and every time I saw a Sandy near that leaf I'd move it over to him back and forth and to keep it focused and uh, that's how I got him out <laughs> I still have that mirror to this day <laughs> Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. So, uh, how did they finally uh, come and, and, and get you out? They brought in uh, the chopper. It was a jolly green giant. Well, before they brought it in, they said we're going to put down some salad. That was the code name, I believe, in, uh, that they used. In the, that's the name I remember anyway. And salad meant tear gas. They were going to spread the tear gas over the whole area and come in after me. And I said, fine, you know, uh, actually I'd, I'd been trained extensively in it in the Marines, uh, so I knew how to handle it. 
And I had talked to Chopper about uh, 10 feet from me uh, over the, the radio. And just as he got there, he started taking off. Uh, the penetrator kept coming down, but he started going very fast and basically left me behind. I'd been sitting up, and suddenly I was standing there, and, and he was leaving me, but the penetrator was on the ground dragging its way through the, through the jungle. So I... Um, I started chasing the penetrator. I got my radio and my pistol and started chasing that penetrator. Caught up with the, caught up with it about 50 yards up the ray. I, I passed the airplane that had crashed. Saw my chute still there, kinds of things, and grabbed a hold of it, pulled the seat down, and uh, said, "Get me up, you know, thumbs up. I'm hanging on." And uh, that thing was wound up tighter than a drum. I just remember sitting there, sitting with my pistol, just going around and around and around. Uh, uh, and they got me indoors. And uh, they slowly peeled everything, you know, the pistol out of my hand, and they were, and make sure that uh, they had me on board. And and uh, I've got, well, I, I've got pictures of uh, just coming on board and then a few things like that, which we'll show you. But um, got me on board, and uh, everybody was crying because the pro, the blade wash had had brought the tear gas into the helicopter, and they weren't ready for that. And it's kind of surprised them, so that's why they had taken off. And uh, there was a combat photographer on board because I was presumably the Air Force's first lieutenant to get shot, first second lieutenant to get shot down. So they wanted pictures of it or something. So uh, anyway, uh, they got me on board, and uh, then I, the adrenaline rush uh, of being picked up uh, took over, and I went into the shiver mode, and they laid me out and covered me up and gave me a cigarette, and I was happy for. <laughs> Give me an idea of the, of the sense of release at that point for you. It was it was uh, significant. They said you're going to start shivering. I mean, they told me you're going to start shivering, and I said, well, I'm just happy. I, I'll shiver all all I want. And sure enough, as I as I laid on the cot inside the chopper, um, I I shook as much as I've ever have. And uh, but that was a, a a large release for me, you know, to know that I was making it out of there. Of course, you're worried about the helicopter getting shot up the way it did the day before, and we still had 37 millimeters, and did we really kill that 37 millimeter over there and all those things? But as we got higher and higher and further away, uh, the Sandys were alongside the helicopter, and I asked if I could, you know, just thank the Sandys that were there. And they said, you'll get to talk to them when we get back to home base. Which I can't, I'd flown out of Da Nang, but uh, we, they took me back to... Uh, and I can't remember the Nate Confinam in uh, Thailand. And uh, uh, that's where we landed. And I asked for a steak sandwich and a glass of milk. And there was a crowd of people, two or three hundred people, waiting for me uh, because it was a big deal. <laughs> the second lieutenant. <laughs> so uh, it was, that was nice. After surviving his close call, Bill Townsley wanted nothing more than to get back to his duties as a forward air controller. We hope you've enjoyed this presentation of In Their Own Words. This program was created and produced by First Person Productions in association with the Documentary Broadcasting Company. The stories told herein were supplied by The Honor Project. Produced by David Benson. Content written and produced by Dave Barsky. Engineered by Greg Bartheld and Brian Donovan. Narrated by Bill Ratner. This production is copywritten by First Person Productions Incorporated.
Any unauthorized broadcast, public performance, or copying is a violation of applicable laws. We often hear about the individuals who took the oath of office to become the chief executive. But what about the other people who play a role in each administration or the events that may not be as well known, but that contribute to the reshaping of the office of the American presidency? On the presidencies of the United States, we explore each administration beyond just the person holding the highest elected office in order to better understand the history that brought us to the modern day presidency. I hope you'll join me on this journey through the annals of presidential history. Presidencies can be found anywhere fine podcasts can be found and is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network.